Hey guys, Ben here, editor of The Simpleton Podcast. Today's episode is a little bit different. So Clark and Laura are both currently in DC at the DC Simple House's 20 year celebration party. Uh, 20 years of Simple House, we're really excited about that. And so today's episode is actually Clark's audio from a talk he gave to the seminarians at Conception Seminary College just a couple weeks ago. Uh, he hopped on Zoom to talk to the seminarians there. They're studying at Conception Abbey in Conception, Missouri to answer their questions and talk a lot about poverty, uh, the role of the church, uh, formation, simple houses, missionary life, and a variety of other topics. So uh, he jumps between topics a little bit, so I try to edit it to make it pretty coherent, but in case it skips around a little bit, now you know why. So enjoy today's episode and roll the intro music. Myself. I, I'm kind of been asked to talk partly because of my knowledge of poverty and the issues around that and the church's concern for that. But I'm also, you know, been running this missionary organization that's celebrating its 20th anniversary. And so I'll go and talk about missionary work too. And it's very easy for me to get off topic, off my expertise onto anything. I'm kind of from a middle-class, upper middle-class, like suburban type background. And when I first came to, you know, Try to run a mission for the poor. I was in Southeast DC, which was very, I was like the only white guy in my zip code. Actually, there were two others. We were so rare that you knew every other white person in the zip code. There was like crazy guy, really old guy. And then I was like young religious guy. When I went there, you'd just start seeing these problems that didn't make any sense. Like you, there was a lot of car theft, but the car theft was always for kids under 16. And they were never stealing the cars because to make money or because they were hungry or anything else. They were stealing cars for joyriding. You'd always get your car back two days later. One time we got the Simple House van back with the parking brake shot out on it. Um, as soon as they ran out of gas, they abandoned your car, right? I, I had prostitutes walking on the street in front of Simple House and I would talk to them and it'd just be interesting. They wouldn't make much sense. You know, like they, they were kind of the way their thought pattern was wouldn't make sense. It was hard to it was hard to hold an intelligent, it just, it was hard to hold, not an intelligent conversation. It was hard to hold just an idea in conversation with them. And one day, this one woman named Curly wasn't there anymore. And she wasn't there for months and months. And then one day I walk outside and I see her and she's in her right mind. She makes perfect sense. She seems, if anything, above average intelligent. And I go, what are you doing? She goes, Oh, you know, I go, well, I haven't seen you in a while. What are you doing? She goes like, well, you know, I've been in Virginia for some months. I've been in this program. And I go, Oh, that's great. And she goes, yeah, I'm really turned it around. And, and I go, but why are you here? And I go, Sh and she was just quiet. And I go, should you be here? And she goes, probably not. I'm here looking for the excitement. Somehow that street lifestyle was not about money or even the drugs. It was about something else. It was about like this excitement idea. Valor, like street valor, like this romance of the streets. It's kind of like, why do we all watch these mafia movies? Why do people like the Godfather movies? They're evil. Not great, you know, but there's this romance to it. And there's somehow, this is like the problem that the poor in America are facing that's got them stuck. In those early days of Simple House, I thought, wow, you know, I came here expecting to meet a material poverty and I found something different. And then I read this story. I think it was online, but I can't remember where I read it, but it was a Filipino priest. And I started researching this guy because he was in Mongolia. And I was very fascinated by Mongolia because I thought, what 
more different place than where we are right now is there than Mongolia. That's got to be as far away as possible with the most different mindset as possible, right? And this Filipino priest had started a boarding school. And what he would do is he would jump down into the sewer system of the capital city, Ulaanbaatar, and look for homeless families. Because it's so cold in Mongolia that people would go down into these like big storm sewers to get warm, you know, underground. And when he found a homeless family, he would try to convince their kids if they wanted to come to his boarding school while their parents hopefully kind of got their act together, right? And I thought, this is the most amazing ministry I can imagine. He is really confronting material poverty. And here, you know, in Southeast DC, I'm dealing with this other strange thing. And I even started making plans to go see him. I started trying to get my passport. I got a book on how to learn Mongolian. But then I got this next article about him. And he said this really strange thing. He said, if the kids have been in the sewer for more than a couple months, I can't get them to come to my school. I can't convince them to come to my school because they will prefer the freedom of the sewer to my school. And then I realized that he had the same problem I was having. And there has to be this sense, like something that young people and new missionaries always have to somehow struggle through is this idea that like, and I had to too, is this idea that like, God's letting this happen. You know what I mean? Like, if it's okay with God, it needs to be okay with you at some level, you know? So as you're helping people, you get upset, you get so mad if they start failing, you know? And that's because your ego's in it. Somehow they need the freedom to fail. And if someone has taken like a decade to get into the state they're in, like if you go meet a homeless guy under a bridge, I guarantee you, it's not like a bad week that put him underneath that bridge. It's a, he's burned every bridge in his life to the point that everyone he's known won't let him crash on the couch anymore. Or he's got some type of mental disorder where he won't ask. And so if you're going to help someone like that, if it took him 10 years to create this problem, it's going to take 10 years to fix, you know, I mean, or longer. It's a lot easier and quicker to do damage than to heal. You know, I feel like the, the church is for everyone, even people outside the church. And there's a sense in which we have something to offer the addict, even if he never becomes Catholic, you know? And I, I don't know how to like phrase that correctly, but the witness of the, it's like the witness of Jesus. It's not like everyone he interacted with, I believe he helped, but they didn't all become like an apostle or a disciple, you know? Back around 2015, Simple House started a mission in Nicaragua, and we had to shut it down in 2018 because there was a lot of unrest. It was kind of a civil war type thing was happening, and they were blaming Americans, so we had to get everyone out. But the thing that happened in this Nicaraguan mission all the time is I would like go down this dirt road uh, when I visited it, and you'd like look inside this house that didn't have running water, but there'd be like a big screen TV. And people would approach the mission and be like, hey, how about I sell you my land and you give me a job? Right? Like they're at, it's really hard to help someone escape poverty if they're going to turn away their opportunities and be really dedicated to it. Like you couldn't almost talk them into that. That wasn't a good idea. What I think this means is that poverty is just way worse than we all thought it was. And it doesn't matter how much stuff you come with and how many jobs you provide and Whatever you do like that, you're not, it's going to be undefeatable. It's like the Jesus said, the poor will always be with us. 
And when we come up with these like kind of truisms, like these statements are true, but they're not nearly as true as we would like them to believe, like teach a man to fish versus give him a fish, you know, or instead of saving the drowning man, stop the man who's throwing him in, you know, who's causing these guys to drown, you know, or um, give the poor dignity through your work. I have no idea how to give someone dignity. It's just not for one person to give to another. You can honor it, but that's all you can do. All of these things kind of have a point, but they don't get to the root of the problem. And part of it's just the root of the problem is so strange, right? The problem's root seems to be like some type of lack of hope. And this lack of hope just kind of creates a self-defeating behavior. That's kind of like a slow suicide. And Christianity, Catholicism, has never been about curing poverty. But we're the only ones who actually can address this root problem. I think the church's role with poverty is greater than like all the secular philanthropy in the world combined, because we're the only ones who's going to address this hope, this faith, this need to be loved. When you go to address it, it's not empathy and commiseration what the poor need. You know, it's not you going and crying with them and just like being empathetic with them about their problems that they need. They somehow need you to respect whatever suffering they have and respect the predicament they're in, which maybe you do have a better predicament, you know. But these people need hope, faith, and love. And you can even tell that when like someone who has very little has hope, faith, and love, they don't even seem poor. They could like technically be poor, but they don't seem poor. They seem rich. They're friends of the king. They have everything they need. Because they have hope, faith, and love. And part of what we lose sight of constantly, like I keep thinking that Catholicism is like the opposite of a mystery religion, like of the ancient mystery religions. Like we, we, everything's public. You can come to our mass, read all our teachings. We're not withholding anything that's at the core of our faith. You know, we're just, it's all on display. You know, we're not, we're not hiding the truth from anybody. But even though we have no secrets, we still forget the most basic things like they were secrets. The goal of our faith is kind of Pentecost. It's this like indwelling of the Holy Spirit that lives within you. It's this like cohabitation of God with you that doesn't annihilate you, that does not possess you, but does everything with you. It's not just when you pray that God is with you. With every Christian, God's with them when they eat an apple, and God's with you even when you're doing something wrong and saddens the spirit within you. And this is kind of what all humanity needs, and this is mostly what we need to offer the poor. That doesn't mean we're not also offering the material works, but these material works are like vehicles to help with the hope, faith, and love. We always get off track because we put something else besides that as the focus. Like, liturgy serves the sacrament. The sacrament serves God, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. In a sense, Everything I just said is something that's very hard for charitable ministries to accept. I was going around Kansas City here. I was with a guy who founded a ministry out of Baltimore. He was, he was just visiting, and there was a huge billboard, and it had a kid on the billboard sleeping on the street. And I said, that's a lie. You know, like that kid sleeping on that sidewalk, it's a lie. Like, you know it and I know it. Like, if that kid is sleeping on that sidewalk, you or I will go get that kid right now. Just tell me the location of that kid. We'll go get that kid. Every police officer in Kansas City will get that kid. There's a lot of people who will go help that kid, right? But that doesn't keep 
ministries from putting up billboards like that. And I bet they're very successful. It's just this strange, like, it's like we don't actually want to know what the core problem is. And even the people who work in the field are willing to almost like misrepresent it. You know, like when Christ addresses the poor throughout the gospel or a poor sinner, I almost feel like the right way to approach this is always just kind of the more you embody Christ, the greater witness you're going to be when you go out. And to keep that as, in a sense, like it's not really an agenda, but that is the agenda. You know, the way Simple House works is we kind of go into people's living rooms and instead of like assuming what any problem they're having is, we just say, hey, what are you guys trying to do? And then they say, hey, we're trying to get healthcare. Hey, we're trying to work on education. Hey, we're trying that. Then our next question is, how do you want to do that? And then they say um, how they want to do that. And then we just try to help them do it. You know, you just try to make it a little bit easier and a little bit more rewarding, but you can never do it for them or it's a complete disaster. American poverty is almost the poverty of too much stuff. We've never experienced hunger. Like like my missionaries, we've never found hunger unless it's like a parent who's off on drugs just straight up neglecting the kids. To me, that was kind of earth-shattering to say that like hunger is not a problem. Parents off on drug trips is a problem. You know, that causes hunger. They're they're literally not going to the food pantries to pick it up when these kids are having hunger issues, you know. How it's changed, one of the things that's been kind of interesting is um homelessness went up at least 200% here in Kansas City and in DC during the COVID lockdown. I was kind of beside myself. I don't really understand why it happened. Like I still, even today, I'm still trying to figure out why homelessness went up 200%. And it's gone back down a lot, but it's still up at least 100% from say 2019. And I don't think it's economic. I've like the longer you work with the homeless, this is this is also kind of shows you what poverty is like in the U.S. If you go under a bridge and you find a homeless guy and you say, why are you under a bridge? And he'll say, I lost my job at the factory. Right. If you hang out with that guy for three months, you'll have a very different idea why that guy's homeless than he lost his job at the factory. Right. It's almost never economic. Another thing you'll ask the guy underneath the bridge is, why don't you go to the homeless shelter? We all just kind of look at this problem and assume there aren't beds there, but there are. And he'll say they don't. He'll either say I feel threatened there, which I kind of never buy because it's so threatening to live underneath the bridge. But he'll say, I can't do what I want to there. Right. So what I'm kind of pointing out is even things like homelessness are very seasonal. Like during the summer, there's tons more homeless people than in the winter. And it's not that they all like move to Florida uh, during the winter. It's that they actually go inside. They actually get their act together because it's so hard to be homeless. They kind of get their act together and aren't homeless. Part of the reason to be homeless is to like drink at night and things like this. And that's roughly the majority of homelessness is addiction and alcohol is about half of it and all other drugs are about the other half. And the, the other, like maybe third of it is usually pretty severe mental illness, like schizophrenia and the, um, shutting down of um, the institutions that happened in America sometime like in the 70s and 80s. I feel like the fundamental thing is to really get to know the poor and to become friends with them. And this is not like this like duty of love. This is like enjoy them. You know, it's like there was a priest I knew who used to preach and he'd be like, God loves you, but God also likes you. Like, and that's like almost more threatening than God loves you. 
you know, and you need to be that to the woman who's sleeping in front of the rectory. You have to be the person who actually likes her, who wants to understand what's going on. And you're not the person coming in with just a bed for the night, in a sense, right? Now, having said this, you can't do that when you're rolling through a gas station and there's some guy right there. And you can't even do that to that many people. Say you were working in Kansas City or whatever major city. I mean, you might find the guy in front of your work or in front of your rectory and build that relationship and build it deep and eat lunch with that person and things like that, right? Um, but you can't do that for like all the poor, right? And this whole all the poor problem is always a distraction. <laughs> you always just have to focus on one person at a time. This, I think this personalism is, is kind of the key. So like I myself still struggle with the biblical verses about give to everyone who asks. I mean, I could give something symbolic to everyone who asks, but I actually just don't believe that that is the gift that they need, is a small symbolic gift. You know, they need someone who wants to, like, be with them and um, enjoy their company and talk to them through things and things like that. All right, that's going to be my second topic. I'll start it with a story. I got this word that my dad was going to receive an honor, and my dad had really advanced Parkinson's and couldn't recognize anyone. And this honor was he was getting inducted into the Pittsburgh State University, like Rugby Hall of Fame. Uh, they have this rugby club down there called Gorilla Head Rugby. And he founded it back in the 70s, right? So I had to go to this Hall of Fame induction, and I didn't know what to expect, right? I end up in Pittsburgh, Kansas. They're having this thing they call the Janquet. It's the Janky Banquet. And so they're all dressed in the most ridiculous costumes, you know. It, all of these rugby alumni have come back, guys who just graduated a few years ago, and they all come back all every year for this banquet. And they do this whole ceremony, and like people are crying like all the time about how important this rugby club is and how it really made their time at Pitt State like meaningful and stuff like this. And I'm just like, this is kind of crazy. I mean, this is kind of like a not very big college, a not very big club at a not very big college. And this is like the center of the universe. And I started thinking about ideas like, what do people remember of their college experience? Why do people love college, right? You guys are having a very unique college experience, so you have to contextualize this for yourself. It might be just as true for you. But if you ask people like, hey, why did you love KU? Why did you love Mizzou? Why did you love these things? Their answers are always like, my friends in the dorm, the sorority, the co-op I lived in, the, the like rugby team, the soccer, the on-campus this, the this, 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 the debate club, right? Um, the Libertarian Society or something like that. Like These are all their memories. And you know what they're never mentioning? Like math class. They're never actually mentioning any class. The essential college activity is going to class. But the reason why people love college is like the ecosystem that grows up around that. And I think every great Christian community is like this. The parish, the college classwork is like the sacraments. But the thing that just makes everything great is that ecosystem around it, right? You can almost judge the success of your parish, how long people talk after Mass, right? If you as a priest have to start kicking people out so that the next Mass can happen, you have a great parish even though it's annoying you to have to like force people out, you know? I think the key here is as a leader of a parish, you are more like leading an ecosystem 
than you are leading a project. You know, like you're like trying to foster things and let things bloom and create. And if, if God's doing a good job at this, it's like a great garden, right? And it's not a garden like a Japanese garden where like all the pebbles have been raked, you know, in lines. You know, it's kind of more like an English garden where like there's just bunches of stuff everywhere. And um, one of the great problems we have as church that's a big scandal. It's like a scandal staring us in the face, but we're not really talking about it. It's like we have a great way to welcome Anglicans and philosophical and smart people into our church. It is very hard to get a dumb, poor sinner into our church, right? Find a dumb, poor sinner on the street and try to get that person through RCA, and you will realize RCA was not made for this person, right? We need to make RCAA's curriculum or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. Reinvent the whole thing for dumb, poor sinners. And somehow I think the job of the priest as the pastor is just to keep encouraging everyone to start thinking in these terms. I think because it's kind of an ecosystem, it's not like you're managing with all the answers or micromanaging anything. You're just kind of like trying to give the freedom to let things flourish. So meaning like a formation is like a directed thing where you're like trying to shape people in a certain way. It's not an official teaching at the church, but I do believe there's almost an infinite number of you know, variety of people. And I think there's probably an infinite number of um, relationships with God, right? And I wonder if spiritual direction is very successful and pastoring is very successful when you honor that idea. You know, you're trying to get people to bloom. Formation is just tricky because of that, right? You, your job is to keep people out of sin. Your job is to keep people from becoming too narrow, but you don't want to create a formation that actually makes them narrow. Like one of these other kind of open secrets is like the people who killed Christ are the religious people. You know, the most religious people of their day were the people who wanted Christ crucified because he was breaking religion. And it was both the liberals and the conservatives. This is Sadducees were kind of the liberals and the Pharisees were the conservatives and they united on this idea, high-fived each other and had a crucifixion. This would be my third topic, but it's real short. I think 25 years ago when I was kind of like where you guys are, I was never in seminary, but I was kind of in the same mental space that you guys are trying to figure this out a little bit. During that time, I feel like there was this really relevant question that everyone who could was asking. And the question was, what happened? You know, why has Christianity fallen off its pedestal? Why have we lost so much ground? Why are so many churches closed? Like, and it was a Protestant question and a Catholic question. You know, why, in a sense, like when Nietzsche said, God is dead, what killed him? Like, why, why is this not catching anymore, you know? And it was definitely like a past tense question. It was a what happened question. And most of the time we had some weird conclusion, like it was all postmodernism, and then we had some reason and blah, blah, blah. And you just kind of complain about it, like you couldn't do anything about it. I feel like today people don't ask that question anymore. People are asking, what is happening? Like, what is this thing that's happening right now? I think the people who are paying attention are asking a present tense question. And I think you guys are at this really interesting point because you're part of the eternal church in a very important role at this like saddle point in history. Like I, I would, I could defend this, but I probably don't have time to, but I think we're in a point like when post, when modernism became postmodernism, like we're at the inflection point. It's like a saddle point. It could get real bad, could get real good. <laughs> Um, and I don't think anyone quite knows what's next. It's just kind of an interesting point to be young at, 
you know, it's also an interesting idea that you might become a priest and there's going to be a lot of flux. Like the thing Pope Benedict talks about all the time, he said there was a German word for it that English, we don't talk about this as much, maybe because we don't even have the right words. He would call it Weltschung, like worldview, you know, or world attitude. He, he talks a lot in his like writings about changes in the attitude of the world or the worldview of the world or how people are perceiving things, you know? And I think we're in a flux of a worldview.